Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Inside the Asperger Studios. Today on the show, I'm joined with Tim Goldstein, as we're going to talk about why neurodivergent should change to neurodistinct. And we'll talk about other pleasant things about autism and everything else, and we'll learn more about him. So sit back, relax, and grab your favorite beverage, and I'll see you on the other side. See you there. Welcome back to another episode of Inside the Asperger Studios. Today, I'm joined with Tim Goldstein. Welcome to the show, Tim. Hey, glad to be here, Reed. Uh, thank you for having me. Not a problem. So why don't you tell everyone a little bit about yourself and we'll get going. Well, a little bit about myself. I think uh, probably most uh, pertinent to this show particularly is I uh, am autistic and I was diagnosed at 54. So I'm one of the late diagnosis uh, people, which I think is fairly common in my age group because when we went to school, they didn't know about it. Uh, so we just went into the world and had to figure it out ourselves. Uh, you know, through my career, uh, I, like a lot of autistic individuals, have uh, had ups and downs and uh, done tremendously well and then got fired and done tremendously well and then got fired. And, uh, you know, my original career was actually in the bicycle business, started out low as you can be sweeping floors and unwrapping bikes and ended up doing uh, national sales teams and international supply chains. And then I got fired. And uh, then uh, at that point uh, I just ended up doing a series of just like, I, I call them crappy jobs, but it was really good learning of what a lot of people have to you know do to just make ends meet if they don't have skills. Um, I was a college dropout, uh, one year college dropout, um, <laughs> but it, it was a valuable year. And then uh, I ended up getting into um, tech, into the tech world. And uh, once I got into the tech world, uh, I found my home. I, I found my people. I found my home and uh, loved it to death and uh, have been in the tech world now, gosh, 25 years or something. Uh, and that was, you know, so that was about my fifth career. Uh, and, uh, you know, I did change multiple companies, got changed, got fired multiple times. Uh, so many times I, I wrote a book called Geek's Guide to Interviews uh, because I got really good at interviewing. Uh, that was the good thing of having a sales background, I guess, is you know how to sell the interviewers. And, uh, you know, now I work for uh, one of the, uh, you know, major global uh, internet companies that, uh, you know, go into those uh, initials when they talk about the ones in the uh, stock market. Uh, so, you know, have uh, been fairly successful and uh, enjoying myself there. So when we last we talked, you were you had mentioned you don't like the word neurodivergent. Why don't you like that word? I mean, what does it what kind of emotion does it bring it up to you? Well, I, I won't say it's so much an emotion. Maybe it's more of a uh, learned thing. Uh, you know, along the way, I didn't mention I, I did have my own. I've had multiple companies. I had my own manufacturing company. I ran for ten years. Uh, designed, created lots of different products. And so I had to learn marketing and the uh, one year of college I took actually was for business and did have, you know, some actual real education in marketing. And I, I, it's really a marketing thing. When you look at it, uh, companies, uh, you know, drug companies are, are a great example, spend 
a fortune to pick the right name for a drug. Uh, and, you know, companies pay whatever they sell. They, they spend, you know, lots of time, lots of effort finding the right name that will convey the right sense, the right emotion, the right, you know, feelings about their product. Uh, and to me, neurodivergent uh, has a very negative sound to it. It just comes across, if you don't know what it means, first off, it's hard to approach. Uh, you, you can't just break it down and say, oh, you know, I, I can figure out what that means. It, it is, you know, hard to, hard to approach. And I, I'm convinced that uh, when you use words like that, that people don't understand, that makes them feel stupid. And nobody likes to feel stupid. So they turn it around and say, you're the arrogant jerk. It's making me feel stupid. And, you know, I, I've been the arrogant jerk for enough of my life before I was diagnosed. I, I don't need to, uh, you know, self-inflict any more of that <laughs> on myself. Um, so, uh, you know, I use the term uh, neurodistinct. And neurodistinct is really framing much better. First off, people can pick it apart by themselves pretty easy. Neuro, brain, you know, thinking, you know, even if they get close and distinct. Oh, it stands out in some way. Well, most people in life want to stand out in some way, whether it's, you know, be a great in their family, be great on their job, be great in a sport. Uh, so I think neurodistinct is a, uh, a far, far better framing. And there's a study out there. It's kind of interesting. It uh, deals with the researchers came, took two shapes. One shape was a star, kind of like you'd see uh, in a comic strip when somebody punched somebody, you know, so that weird, you know, kind of funky, all irregular star shape. And the other one was a blobby kind of rounded shape. And they came up with two totally fictitious words. So they sound like words, but they really have no meaning. And if I remember right, it was kiki and booba. And when they show that to the general population, 85% of the general population will say Kiki is the uh, star and booba is the rounded shape. So they just automatically associate 85% associate it. But when you take autistic individuals, it's 58%. Hmm. So in other words, we're not very good at discriminating how words impact other people. Cause when you think 58% is barely above random chance. Uh, of getting the, getting the shapes right. And when you look at the general population at 85%, we're really seeing that there is a strong tie-in between the way a word sounds and how people interpret it and what qualities they associate with it, which goes back to prove that's why companies spend millions and millions of dollars coming up with names. So that's why I don't like it. The other thing is, it has absolutely no, um, you know, academic uh, standing or reason uh, as far as where it came from. Uh, it, it wasn't like a neurodiversity, which, you know, Judy Singer, there's a, an academic paper written about what neurodiversity is. Well, the neurodivergent was not in her paper whatsoever. Uh, neurotypical was in her paper, but not neurodivergent. Neurodivergent uh, actually uh, came from a uh, an activist uh, that uh, just came up with it because uh, she thought it made everybody more inclusive, which is really funny when the root of uh, divergent is, uh, you know, is to divide. <laughs> so how, I don't know how dividing makes you more inclusive, uh, but being distinct is uh, not giving that separation. So that is why I, I don't like the word is I don't think it casts us in a positive light in the general public. 
And it also uh, is, you know, not people don't understand it and until you sit down and explain the word to them. So I'd rather use a self-explanatory word that makes them think more positive thoughts towards us. All right. Let's get into a little bit more about yourself. Sure. How do you de- deal with overstimulation? You know, that's an interesting question. I am, I guess you would say I am a uh, outgoing introvert is the way I like to refer to it. And to me, introvert and extrovert is how do you recharge and shy and outgoing is how do you show up in the public? So I am definitely an outgoing kind of person and I, I enjoy being around people. I enjoy, you know, interacting and I don't actually notice the drain that it puts on me while it's going on because I'm in the moment, I'm having fun. I'm, you know, so I don't notice it until it ends and when it ends and then, you know, there's a big crash because, uh, you know, you really did burn a lot of energy that, uh, you know, and cognitive resources that uh, you didn't even notice because you were having such a good time interacting with cool people. And, you know, I'd say just about everybody you meet's a cool person. I mean, once you mm-hmm. spend time to get to know them. So my normal way of recharging is uh, uh, my favorite, you know, when I have the opportunity is I live here in Colorado and I'm, uh, well, it's 15 minutes to my favorite trailhead, which is right at the uh, you know beginning of the Rocky Mountains. So I throw on a pack and uh, I, I go hiking and I'm not out sightseeing. I'm actually in my head uh, um, I mean, to the point where I've, I've, you know, just about walked over people because I'm not looking at where I'm going. I'm kind of, you know, I'm, I'm in my own head. There, there's times and, and I've hiked the same trail so many times that, I mean, I can, you know, I, I could sit here and describe to you exactly what it was like and where it goes uphill and where it turns. I, I've hiked it where all of a sudden I realize I, I don't even remember that I went through, you know, a mile and a half of it and it wasn't even aware. I mean, I was just in my head and that's how I recuperate and, and recharge is just get out uh, away from people, away from distractions, away from electronics, uh, you know, away from everything and uh, just spend peaceful, quiet time doing, uh, you know, some good, solid exercise. So you, so nature is the one thing that kind of helps recharge you. Yeah, I, I would say uh, it, it's a combination of being in nature and the, uh, the, you know, the physical activity I think is, is helpful because I think that burns off a lot of the, uh, the hormones and such that accumulate as you're, you know, interacting and you're excited about it. And, you know, that's obviously generating hormones, but yeah, I, I, my favorite, you know, I much prefer being in nature doing that compared to going to the gym. And it's not the people at the gym. It's just standing on a treadmill and doing five and a half miles on a treadmill over two hours or an hour and a half or something to me is, is just painful, but doing the exact same thing, you know, hiking in the mountains is mm-hmm. a pure joy. Anyways, when you, when you get called for a company to give a lecture to them, what kind of topics do you deal with? It varies upon the company. I, I normally will meet with the, you know, the people that are setting it up and find out what are they trying to accomplish with having me present to them? Because it varies. Uh, you know, some companies are looking to have a introduction to neurodiversity. I, I actually did a, presentation last week for a a company and that what they really wanted was positioning 
neurodiversity into the broader subject of diversity. And diversity is a very big thing for this particular company. So they really wanted to understand how does it fit in so they can start integrating it into their diversity programs. Uh, and it was really cool. They actually had a, a thousand out of 2,700 employees were on the, uh, on the virtual and uh, they were in 18 different countries. So you know, a little bit of impact. Uh, and the, the uh, woman who set it up, the DEI person was just ecstatic. She said phenomenal foundation to build neurodiversity now into it. On the other hand, you go to other companies and other companies are looking more for just general awareness. What, you know, what is neurodiversity? What are neurodistinct people? And, you know, I can only really talk from the lens of autism because I'm autistic and that's the only lens I got. But uh, I, you know, I certainly can uh, say all the way through, this is my view from being autistic, but they also, you know, there's other groups in the neurodistinct, such as ADHD and dyslexia and, you know, and they all have their own, you know, challenges and they have their own strengths. Uh, but everybody's an individual. So no matter, you know, what group you go to, don't judge by one, don't assume I'm, you know, the exemplar for all autistics, no more than any of you listening are the exemplar for you know, whatever group you identify with. Uh, so it really just, it, it varies like that. But my, my focus is always really the workplace and, um, you know, trying to get the workplace to be more accepting of people who think differently, which obviously autism, but again, any of the neurodistinct, the whole definition of neurodistinct I use is people who perceive process and think in a distinctly different manner than neurotypicals. Uh, you know, you want to listen to those people because they have different perspectives and that's just like any other diversity. Why do we want diversity? Because we want those perspectives. All right. What kind of um, response have you got from your talks? I mean, do people come up to you and thank you because you've kind of opened their minds to the neurodiverse? Yeah. Yeah. I, I would say the, uh, you know, every now and then you get somebody that makes a negative comment, but you know, there's haters everywhere. So you just, you know, deal with that. Uh, but that is not by any means the majority. That's very, very rare. Uh, you know, overall people very, very uh, much you know, enjoy it because they've now seen an aspect of humans that they never understood before. And more often than not, especially if it's a larger company, and when I say larger, you know, more than five, 600 people or something, you'll get people that come up and go, you know, I worked with this person, I had this boss, and I just never understood, but uh, now I get it. Because nobody's ever explained to them what, you know, in my case, autism is. Uh, you know, it's, it's not Rain Man, it's not Sheldon. That's all they know. They, they don't know better than that. So actually, you know, having a real live person and, you know, I would say what probably helps me a fair amount was I've had a, quite a bit of training in public speaking and in being able to relate to audiences. So I come across uh, more in a manner that they can relate to because I'm, I'm talking in the tones and the, the senses of how they expect communication to be, uh, which, you know, isn't the way us autistics tend to communicate. We tend to use words and that's it. Our words, mm -hmm. we're done with the words. Um, to me, I'm not masking though. I've done it to the point now where it's just a skill that is just part of me and it's improved my outcome in life and improves my interaction with other people, my delivery of the message uh, that, you know, whatever I, I had 
happens to be for that particular audience. And uh, I think that also helps a lot because uh, people uh, can now personally identify. And when you can personally identify, I think that's really the trick of what it takes to get people to start accepting is when these things are personally identifying with somebody from whatever the group was. I mean, if you think of uh, the LGBTQ, you know, plus group, what was it that got them acceptance? What got them acceptance was when finally enough of them stood up and started saying, we're here and I'm gay, I'm whatever. And people started going, oh, I went to school with that person. I liked him at school. You know, that's my brother. Oh, that's my uncle. And when you finally were able to make that human connection to them, it, it then remove the stigma because now they're just a person, which is really who we all are. We're just all people. <laughs> now let's go back to narrow um, distinct for a minute. Sure. Have people, have you heard people accept that? Started uh, using, have you heard them using it? Yeah, yes. Um, at the, uh, you know, uh, major global uh, tech company I work with, that is the official term that we use for uh, all outbound reach stuff. Um, you know, we, had a, uh, we've had all different things. Um, but yes, that, that is the term. Uh, it was actually presented uh, at a uh, medical conference that was uh, around um, design and innovation uh, in medicine in uh, Australia. And it was a, a, a tremendous, tremendous uh, reception to it. Uh, I've talked to, it's really interesting. When you talk to autistics, it tends to get pushed back. But when you talk to non-autistics, they embrace the word instantly. Mm. because they, well, you know, think of it this way. If you walked up to the street and just said to somebody, you, you're divergent, you're probably going to get smacked. But if you walked up to them and said, you're distinct, they're probably going to say, oh, thank you. Uh, so I think that's why, you know, the, the embracing of it. And I think the why autistics don't is, you know, A, kind of like I said in that study, we don't have necessarily that sense of how the word has an, you know, has an association and effect um, combined with, you know, what, what's one of the definitions of autism, uh, you know, rigidity and thinking we learned another word. This is the word we learned. This is the word I'm going to use because it's the word I learned. It's the AV thinking. It's the black and white thinking. It's the fact that we only see in two things. We don't see that center road. It's like, oh, there's a change in there. It's sort of like, my mom says to me when when I'm trying to cook something, she's like, you know, you don't have to follow the recipe to the T. You can change it here and there to your liking. <laughs> right, right. And she's she's 100 percent right with that. Uh, but, yeah, I, I think you're, you're right. It's, it's that polarization in thought uh, that says I can't change it. But when we look at many other groups. And, and, you know, I won't say I'm going to get this in a chronological order correct, um, but, you know, when I was growing up, um, what, you know, people of color were referred to as Negroes. And it wasn't derogatory or anything. That was, you know, even the term they used for themselves. That was just the terminology of the time. And then, um, you know, it, it moved to being, I think, black was the next one, or it might have been African-American. I, I don't, again, I don't remember the progression, but, uh, you know, but the chain, the term changed. And suddenly now we, you know, referred to, you know, people of, of color, which is the current term, um, as being either black or African-American and then whichever one it was, then, then it, we turned to the other one. Uh, so it's very common in, you know, in 
groups and in, you know, the English language to have the words you use evolve uh, to fit, you know, what are the current needs? What are the current, uh, you know, things that you're trying to accomplish with or for that group? And again, you know, it's that, uh, that uh, you know, I refer to it as binary thinking, um, just hanging on to, no, this is the word I know. And any other one is mm-hmm. wrong. Um, but when we look at it, it's so common for words to have changed and evolved over time mm-hmm. and we replace it with other words. So I think, you know, why, why shouldn't we use a word that if we were to go, if we were to go have the million dollars to spend with the uh, high end uh, marketing company, I, I guarantee you neurodivergent is not the word they would ever come up with. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so I say, why not change it? Neurodistinct uh, works well. It still fits ND. So all of us who talk about NT, ND, we don't have to change that. ND still works just perfectly fine. Um, but you know, that, that I think is, uh, is part that we don't necessarily accept as autistics is the fact that terminology changes. Yeah. I mean, it, I think that's the big issue with the, those of us who are autistic, we don't adhere to change. We can't deal with change in the rest of the world because, with us, it's everything becomes a pattern and you throw that monkey wrench into the pattern and it's like, oh shit, what do I do now? I, I have this, I have the same problem. Uh, you know, I, I talk about, uh, I, I call it the bread story. Uh, so this is one of my, my common uh, presentation stories. In my, in my presentations, I use a lot of personal stories because, you know, stories relate to people. And the, the, <laughs> the the bread story is a uh, you know dealing with the fact that I like a lot of us autistic individuals always eat the you know same thing for over and over and over again and you know my tends to be about two years till I finally burn out on that one and move to something else and in the bread story I was eating uh, uh, roast beef sandwiches on uh, potato bread and of course mm. you know as you know uh, being a uh, another autistic uh, it couldn't be any potato bread it had to be a specific brand mm-hmm. of potato bread <laughs> and uh, the story just uh, quickly cuz people get a kick out of it is uh, you know we'd go my wife and I would go shopping we'd step in the aisle uh, where the bread was and this store didn't tend to put it in the same place all the time so you couldn't just go to the same spot you had to actually you know find it on the shelf and i i would be reading the end of the labels and looking for, you know, first brand name. And once I found brand name, then, you know, trying to find the right variety. And my wife would inevitably just point and go, oh, honey, it's right over there. And she did this like in five seconds. You know, I mean, I've read like seven labels and she's already pointing at it. (laughs) And it took me a year and a half before I finally asked her, Um, you know, I guess that's the male trait right there is, you know, (laughs) you can't ask. So finally I asked her, how do you do that? And what she said was uh, very eye-opening to me. And she said, it's really simple. I just look at the orange circle that's on the end of the wrapper. And it's the only bread that has an orange circle in the wrapper. <laughs> and and I, I'm, I'm not, uh, you know, at all, you know, have any deficiencies with, you know, seeing color. I have no problems in that area. So when she pointed to the orange, I could, I, I could see the orange clear as could be, but to me, the information was in the words. So I wasn't even paying any attention to the colors. She is very, very, so A, first off, she's ADHD. So she's looking at everything all the time. And, uh, you know, secondly, she's very, very color oriented. Uh, so 
to her. It was just find a pattern that I can identify with and that will help me find the thing. I'm thinking, you know, because this is the way I process, the words are going to tell me the right information. Well, obviously she had a much superior method, but uh, I, I do have to say, I did finally win. Finally, not on the bread though. We were shopping for her coffee about two months ago. And, um, and we were in a store we weren't, don't you know, go to frequently. And uh, we're in the coffee aisle and uh, you know, we're hunting for a coffee. And she comes up to me and says, oh, honey, they, they don't have my coffee here. We're going to need to go somewhere else. And I reach up and grab the box and say, it's right here. Uh, they, had, they had rebranded, but the words were still the same. <laughs> so again, it's not saying that her method was better and my method was worse. It uh, just depends upon the situation, uh, but it does show how differently humans can perceive and how you perceive is going to obviously drive what your world is because that's, you know, dictates what gets through. Well, it's kind of like how Dr. Temple Grandin says it. There are different types of thinkers out there. There are visual thinkers, which is like you, because you, like your wife, because she sees the visual item, the visual picture. You, you see the words. Right, right. And so you two think so differently. So, but yet you're able to define the words because of the rebranding. The rebranding means the image change, but the words stay the same. <laughs> Exactly. Uh, so, you know, in the case of looking for something that didn't change, she had a method that was definitely, you know, superior. But when looking for something that has variability in it, um, my method was better because you're examining more of the detail level versus the, you know, I'd say more impression level. So not one right, not one wrong, just situational as to which one would be the better approach. Anyways, I see that you work for Microsoft. No, actually, uh, the, the, I work for the uh, Big G company. So, so, so Microsoft's actually my, uh, they're, they're one of the competitors. Um, uh, you work for Google. Yeah, yeah, yep. What was uh, it like working for Google and how do they handle neurodiversity? Do they have their own program? I know Microsoft has it. Is Google trying to implement something like that? You know, they're working towards it. Uh, they, they, I will say that they have been slower than many other companies in, in moving ahead in that area. Um, and Microsoft, I'm very, very familiar with Microsoft. Uh, Neil Barnett's a gentleman that runs Microsoft's program. Wonderful, wonderful guy. Um, actually just emailed with him a couple of weeks ago. Uh, they have a phenomenal program. Uh, they've been, you know, very much a leader in that for well, since the Autism at Work kind of program started, what, seven or so years ago, they've been one of the, the leaders, um, SAP, you know, another one of the leaders. No, I, I would say uh, we're, we're more at the uh, stage of um, they're recognizing now that they do need to accept it. They're using it uh, through their DEI efforts to, um, to engage with other companies, uh, particularly mm. partners and such. Um, I've been on a number of their DEI efforts when me and a, a couple of the other uh, autistic and uh, other neurodistinct category people uh, are, you know, the frequent uh, three or four that, you know, are always doing these things. And, um, you know, they're definitely, uh, you know, aware of it. They're aware that it's a, a big, huge growing thing. Um, but Google's, a, Google's an interesting culture. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm, I love it. I'm, I'm really enjoying it there. It's, it's a great place to work. Uh, but 
when I say it's an interesting culture, you know, most companies are, are, you know, fairly structured and not that they don't give you individual flexibility, but nonetheless, you can easily figure out, okay, who do you go to to get something approved? And, you know, where do you go? And, you know, there's enough structure that you can figure those things out. Google has always been huge on self-empowerment. You know, the, the 20% project kind of things where you just work on some project that you want to do because you want to do it. And, uh, you know, that kind of stuff. Uh, so what I've really seen is while there is lots of interest and effort going towards it, and a lot of the effort has actually been on the autism community's side, to be honest, we've put on presentations for the entire company and all that kind of stuff. Uh, there's not a cohesion across the company tying all the efforts together. So, you know, that that's, I guess why, uh, you know, Google often has multiples of the same products is because uh, it isn't being run from top down. It's being run from, you know, more individual initiatives. And, uh, you know, like usual, when a good idea comes up, it comes up for a bunch of people at the same time. Mm. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm actually very, very excited. It's moved now from being a recruiting program. It's moved into the DEI realm, which is, I, I think, where autism at work needs to be placed is it needs to be placed into DEI because really that's, that's what the problem is. You know, for all practical purposes, you know, we're our own culture and, you know, there's an autism culture, there's an ADHD culture, there's a, uh, you know, there's even a neurodistinct culture, which is kind of an umbrella over the whole thing. And uh, then underneath it, there's, you know, all our individual cultures and, the recruiting type programs, uh, to me, don't solve the problem because you haven't taught the company to accept a different culture because you haven't explained the culture to them yet, mm. which is what we do with all other aspects of DEI. We, you know, educate somebody about this is what this culture is about. This is, you know, what they came through. This is their background. This is their, you know, we, you learn about the culture so that you recognize, oh, you know, they're, they're not. They didn't grow up the same place I did. They had a different experience. They're, they're going to, you know, act, talk, whatever, in a different way. Uh, not better, not worse. You know, just like my wife and I, not like one's better or one's worse. They're just different culture, um, you know. So I, I think that's good that it's moving into the culture area, because at that point, that changes the entire organization into, you know, acceptance, uh, whereas hiring programs are really good from the standpoint that you can count them. So, so, you know, management likes things that you can count and you can put numbers on. It's much harder to quantify acceptance and integration. Um, but I think that's what we need is we need to where people, you know, can understand that uh, just because, you know, maybe I don't look you in the eyes when I talk to you. Uh, doesn't mean that I'm being dishonest and lying. It just means that that is not my style of talking. And while it's certainly associated with autism, uh, my understanding is in the Native American culture with a lot of the tribes, that is very disrespectful to look somebody in the eye, particularly mm -hmm. if they're older than you are. Uh, so, you know, it's just a matter of learning the culture that you need to understand that in this culture, they act this way. And that doesn't mean they're being disrespectful. They're being you know, bad, they're being mean, they're whatever. It just means they're being who their culture is. Um, so I'm, I'm excited. I'm excited where it's going. I'm excited where it's, uh, it's moving forward. Uh, you know, I'm excited about the, uh, 
the energy that's uh you know around it and, and happening so uh you know what one thing that is interesting is we uh um with the dei people and such we're working with neurodistinct is the term and it's very simple of how we explain it we're google but we don't repeat the past we build the better future true that's why I've always been an Android lover and a follower of Android. Since Google first came out with Android, the Android OS, I've been a follower of that since day one. And I said, that's going to be the mobile operating system of the future. Certainly is the uh, largest number of phones. That's for sure. That's for sure. Now, when did you start advocating for yourself? Yeah, that's kind of an interesting story even there. Uh, when I was diagnosed, which uh, I'm 62 now, I was diagnosed at 54. So it goes back, you know, a few years. And it just so happens, had nothing to do with getting diagnosed. It just happened, you know, at the, the same general range of time. Uh, my wife and I were attending seminars uh, from, well, the first one was a, uh, I don't know, I'm going to say a self-improvement type seminar. Um, that isn't exactly how I'd classify it, but in, close enough. Uh, and when you go to a lot of those things, it's very common for them when they have, you know, one seminar to then have like this phenomenal great deal to go to another, one of the type of things that they offer. And uh, they, you know, offered a, another one that was called uh, Experts Academy. And Experts Academy was all about uh, teaching you how to take your your knowledge, whether it's lived experience knowledge or learned knowledge from school. I mean, it doesn't matter. How do you take what you know and monetize it in some manner? Well, that sounded interesting. I mean, I, you know, been an entrepreneur, ran my own business from a startup for 10 years, which, you know, means I beat 95% of the, you know, people who start businesses. Um, you know, I did very well in the IT world, you know, had lots of things I could potentially have talked about. But first, you got to learn how to go about doing it before you even have to worry about which, you know, one of those things are you going to do. And um, that, that was very interesting, learned a huge amount about that. Uh, it's actually what led me to finally writing the book Geek's Guide to Interviews was, okay, if I've now learned all the things to monetize it, I now need to go at least do one. And so I decided I'd write the book and that was the book I wrote. Uh, but then they offered a, uh, another uh, seminar that was uh, called um, World's Greatest Speaker. And World's Greatest Speaker was uh, four different individuals presenting how to be a world-class public speaker. And not through the, um, you know, through the uh, Toastmasters approach, uh, but of really more from the entertainment industry approach of how to really connect and uh, with people, not just how to not say, um, you know, I got plenty of ums in there, trust me. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But uh, we went to this and um, one, well, two of the different speakers, one of the speakers was a vocal coach and, you know, arguably the best vocal coach in the world. And another one was a gentleman that, um, well, first he was a uh, NFL football player. Um, quite good. And uh, then he ended up being a uh, Broadway actor and was an acclaimed Broadway actor in a one man play that he wrote himself. Uh, and he was just phenomenal on how you tell stories. So we, we liked both. Of, I mean, we really connected with both those people. So we ended up then going to their seminars <laughs> and 
so we're now doing these things simultaneously, both these seminars. My wife and I were like flying out to California every other week. We were just like flying to California because they're all, all in California. And uh, people thought we were crazy because like most people don't do these things simultaneously. <laughs> they, they do them serially. But, you know, hey, I, if I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it. I just dove in. And we were actually at the one that was the, uh, the Broadway Actors uh, Seminar. And uh, we were in a theater. And there was about 200 people there and it was expensive. I mean, a couple thousand bucks a person to be there. And we had to um, come up with a story to tell. And you got together in a, a group, you know, four or five people, you know, so you just kind of paired up with whoever, you know, was around you that you thought you wanted to pair up with. And you worked on the story and you told the story to each other. And you first had to do it as a three minute story. And then they sent you back together to get together with a different group and now cut it down to a two minute story. And then they had you get together with a different group. Now make it a one minute story. And then everybody had to go up on stage one by one and deliver their story in one line. And I went up and uh, it was the first time I ever openly talked about being autistic. And my one line was, I'm not like you. I'm autistic. And the, the response was, I, I didn't know how the response was going to be. Who knows? I mean, I'm autistic. I didn't care what they were going to think. That was, uh, you know, that was my story. Uh, but the response was just overwhelmingly positive of people that, you know, had autistic kids, uh, you know, and things, things like that. I mean, I had one person come up that did have autistic children and uh, were just so thankful for actually being willing to stand up and say, I'm autistic, not like it has shame, but that's just who I am. So that's how, that's how it started. It just craziest, you know, kind of thing. And uh, so that became what I, I talked on. And now, I don't know, I do it way too much. <laughs> now, what was the feeling you had when you found out you had autism? I mean, was it like a light bulb going off above your head? Was it a sense of relief that you're de different than everyone else, but that's why you're different? Well, I already knew I was different than everybody else. Uh, my, my working theory up to that point uh, was that um, virtually everybody in the world was stupid. Now, it, wasn't, <laughs> it, it wasn't really effective. Trust me. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't a good working theory, but nonetheless, it, it did seem to match the observations of if I can get this stuff so easily and uh, nobody else does, then obviously there's, um, you know, some kind of, uh, of uh, deficit going on. Well, when I was diagnosed, now it put it all into perspective. And what became quite obvious is the deficit wasn't in their intellect. The deficit was in the communications between ourselves. That there was essentially, there were words that went back and forth, but there wasn't communication happening. Um, this is a, a George Bernard Shaw quote. It's actually pinned up in my, my office. And uh, it is the, um, uh, the, the worst thing about communication is the assumption that it happened. Right? I mean, how many times mm -hmm. you, you say something, you assume the other person got what you meant, but the reality is they didn't get what you meant. Uh, they got a different picture from what you meant. I, I, and I, I actually teach and train on that a lot. I, I use it a lot when I'm talking. And the way I often present, I present it usually is, if I say the word beach, what comes to your mind? And for most people, it's white sand, palm trees, you know, pina colada in their hand, maybe, you know, 
I grew up in upstate New York and um, I canoed a lot. I was a boy scout, you know, loved canoeing, loved being in the outdoors. And um, I went canoe camping one time and camped out on a, a little island that was in a lake that had a little circular beach. It was small, about 10 minutes max to walk around the whole beach all the way around. But that's the most memorable beach to me is mm-hmm. a, a beach in the middle of fresh water surrounded by pine trees and mountains. So if I just say, geez, I love being at the beach, people are going to get the completely wrong idea of what beach it is that to me is the one that's relaxing because I don't like the ocean beaches, to be honest with you. There's almost like big things that swim in there. It just like it creeps <laughs> me out. <laughs> so yeah, go on. You know, I say that that's, you know, I, I think a, a big challenge that we, we have is the whole communication thing. And that's, that's really what became clear to me once I was diagnosed and then started, you know, be like, like any good, uh, you know, Aspie. Um, and I, I still like to use the term Asperger's. Um, that's what I was diagnosed with at the time. And uh, I think it, it better defines who I am than saying, you know, ASD level one or saying, you know, HFA, high functioning autism. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, I, as I always say, uh, anybody can uh, use any word they want for themselves. I'm more than willing to respect it, even if uh, everybody else has moved on to something else. So just, you know, I ask people to respect that this is the word I like to stick with. <laughs> um, so, you know, uh, like any good Aspie, though, what did I do? I mean, I, that became my special interest now, trying to understand autism because, uh, you know, I just found out that's what I was. And, uh, you know, and I recognized then it was a communication deficit was really the problem of I, I was saying, you know, the things the way I thought about them and, and saw them and people were not receiving and getting the same concept in their mind because their communication style was different. Um, I, I'm convinced that neurotypicals and a lot of the other neurodistinct categories um, use three modes of communication. And of course there's the words, yeah, obviously, mm-hmm. but there's tonality in the voice and the tonality in the voice can take and totally flip around the meaning of words. I mean, you, you can say, you know, Oh, that was the best meeting I was ever in. And you know, if you're at all good at following tonality and I suck at following it, I just got really good by being trained of how to give it. Um, but that tonality is actually negating what the words are saying. So in other words, mm-hmm. I'm really saying sarcastically, that was that meeting sucked. <laughs> I mean, um, that's why we have such a problem with communications is someone can say something and we can't even tell if it's a joke or not, because right. we can't tell, we can't, we don't hear the tone in the voice. And We'll be just looking with a blank stare at someone like, were you joking or are you serious? Right, right. And, uh, you know, it, it's really funny that even though I was I was taught how to put the emotional sounds and tonality in my voice, it, it's been phenomenal for getting the connectivity and the, the improving the communication to other people, but it didn't do anything for my ability to interpret that on the inbound side. So I have that exact same problem was that I, I take things literally. I mean, there's another yeah, story there. You know, I, there was another story that I, I tell, you know, frequently and I had a, uh, a manager and uh, it was first, first day I was on vacation and uh, she contacted me and said, I, you know, I want to meet with you. Well, I've been fired enough time to know that's usually not a good sign when they want to meet with you on the first day of your vacation. 
so I'm going into this with already a, uh, you know, expectation of a negative outcome. And uh, we're going along, talking along. And she says to me, uh, Tim, I think you should look for a new job. So my response back to her was, isn't this when we're supposed to call HR in? I assumed I was getting fired. Um, well, you know, after working with HR long enough and all that stuff, we, we finally got down to it. And what I totally missed and that what she really meant, and she, she wasn't really always good at expressing in words what she meant. And, and English was a second language for her. So not, you know, in valid reasons, possibly. Uh, what she really meant was, I can see this position in, you know, that you're in now, which was uh, being a uh, um, implementation consultant, but you had to juggle 15 customers. Uh, and, you know, anybody who's ever juggled multiple customers knows that they all have an emergency on the same day. It's just the way it works. Mm -hmm. And that would, of course, uh, you know, put me into uh, overwhelm and, um, you know, things go down here. Meltdown, shut down and everything. Well, I, I wouldn't really melt down. Um, I would, uh, you know, for, for me, I, I would try to rise to the occasion, but on the other hand, my decision-making and such and my communications would degrade, uh, even though I, you know, wasn't shut down, but I was oh, certainly. So you were almost like me in the sense where you go into a panic mode, but you're able to assess the situation, keep yourself calm and figure everything out <laughs> yeah except of course the, all the things you're doing you're doing at a uh, at a uh, you know diminished level than you normally do because you know your body is stressed out and you know reacting as such um, i mean that brings up a great story it's like i think i told you this when we last talked when i was first going away to school across the seas we get to the airport my mom and dad and the guy at the gate goes at the counter goes, oh, only one parent to allow with because of 9-11. My mind is in overload already because all the sounds, all the smells, all the noise, all the lights, and the excitement of going away, and I break down. I can't yep. control my own emotions at that point. I start crying, and I'm pleading, and finally my dad just goes, he'll go with his mother. <laughs> so fortunately there was a glass wall between the gate and where my father was with a guard my dad was able to sit behind the glass wall my mom sat with me with in the waiting area by the gate and by the time the call went for the boarding it's like a light switch mm -hmm. i went from crying to like excited yep Yep. So I, I, I say, yeah, similar, um, similar kind of thing. Uh, but what ended up happening was uh, when HR explained, I, I, uh, she was actually, I missed her tonality. What she was really expressing was concern for how that was affecting me. Mm. And so when she said, you know, I think you should look for another job, she was, you know, probably More a better concerned. way to have phrased it would have been, you know, I'm concerned about how this is affecting you. And I think maybe some other roles would just, you know, be better for your mental health than <laughs> this particular role is. Um, but she instead put it into tonality, which I totally missed. So I took, uh, you know, I think you should look for a new job as being, uh, I think I should look for a new job. <laughs> that must have been such a relief when you found that out. It was, um, I don't know. You know, I'd say I've been, I've been fired enough times that uh, I don't get too uh, worked up over the whole thing. Anyways, what was your family's reaction when they found out you had autism? <laughs> uh, 
Well, my, my daughter, I have a daughter. She's uh, uh, 35. Uh, so she wasn't uh, living at home. She's, you know, when she went to college, she, she moved out and then, you know, always stayed off on her own. Uh, so it didn't really have a, a direct effect on, on her necessarily, but my wife was uh, hallelujah. Now it finally makes sense why, uh, you know, I'm always wondering what, uh, who it is that's going to walk in the door each evening. So you know, almost like, gonna, it was almost like Jekyll and Hyde. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, what it is if you're, uh, you know, if you had a, a rough day, you're stressed out, you're wound up uh, or you're excited and you're bouncing off the ceiling or, you know, you're just in a, you know, I've had people out. I've just like dealt with way too many people today. And I just like, don't even want to hear anybody talk to me anymore. I'm done for the day. <laughs> so she, you know, would never know. Uh, so it was, uh, it, it was definitely a relief. You know, I, I, I want to say it was a relief immediately. It was a relief once, uh, you know, both she and I started understanding really what it really meant. Because at first when you decide, you know, hey, uh, you're autistic, you have Asperger's, it's like, oh, okay, you know, uh, big deal. So, <laughs> you know, but, you know, I, I you know, I, I have blue eyes too. So what, you know, what's that got to do with anything in the world? Uh, but then once you start understanding what it means, it then started becoming very, very obvious uh, of, you know, some of the frictions we had, that's where they came from. And just understanding that that was the problem, it's, it's a lot like the... Uh, uh, you know, when we, we talk, uh, or, you know, a lot of autistics, I, I used to be until I, you know, was trained to not, I used to be very monotone and, you know, monotone is interpreted as being disengaged, not interested. And if you don't make eye contact and you're monotone, then you're really being thought of as being, you know, you're just like blowing the other person off. But once they understand that what autism is and, oh, I'm dealing with somebody who's autistic, then suddenly now you can understand that. No, it's not that that's not meaning that they're disengaged and not interested. If they were disengaged and not interested, they wouldn't be using words with me. They'd be, they'd be walking away. <laughs> so, you know, same thing. Once, once we started understanding uh, more, it, uh, it definitely helped, uh, you know, improve the relationship. And, and we've been married. It's going to be 38 years this now. So, you know, we, we've, you know, been through, uh, you know, some, some definite highs and lows and, you know, been through the trenches. All right, congratulations on 38 years. Thank you. You're welcome. Now, what would you say to someone who just got diagnosed with autism this late in life? Uh, I would say congratulations. You're lucky. <laughs> um, well, from two, you know, a couple standpoints. I mean, first off, they're, they're lucky that they got diagnosed, particularly late in life. Uh, you know, late in life diagnoses are, are much more, uh, uh, you know, infrequent than getting diagnosed in school nowadays. Mm -hmm. So they, they were lucky because once you do understand that's who you are and you start learning some about it, it, it does make it easier to navigate and, and deal with the world because you, you know, you can recognize that, okay, you know, autistics tend to be uh, binary thinkers and kind of rigid in their thinking. Well, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I can see that in myself now. And uh, you know, makes it easier to deal with, with it when you understand what it is versus thinking that's the right way. And, uh, you know, so that's one, one thing why I say they're lucky and, uh, you know, B, I, I think, uh, um, you know, being autistic, uh, is actually a darn good thing for a lot of us. Um, I, I, you know, it's Temple Grandlin, of course, uh, you know, is the one who says that, uh, 
But if it wasn't for uh, autistic individuals, uh, you know, the human race would still be, uh, what, in a cave or I, I can't remember what, what the exact quote is, but essentially that, you know, you needed these people that think differently, that aren't feeling constrained by everything, um, or we wouldn't be where we are right now. All right. Have you taught yourself any shortcuts since you found out you had autism, like things to help you navigate the world? I wouldn't say I taught myself so much. And, and again, it was happenstance. The, the whole learning to communicate from, from entertainers. I mean, that's, that's really, you know, who I learned from is, is the entertainment world. Learning to communicate from what are probably the best communicators in the world. When you think about it, who are the best communicators in the world? Singers and actors. You know, they're probably the best communicators in the world. So I was taught by, you know, people who teach the, world's top singers and actors. And uh, that has made more difference in my life than I think anything, anything else. Uh, so that definitely has been a, a huge, huge thing. And again, it wasn't done because I was autistic. It just, it, it was happenstance that, uh, you know, I, I just right place, right time, willing to give things a go. And uh, oh my gosh, you know, I, I hit the uh, jackpot on that one. <laughs> Uh, so that may have definitely made a, a big difference. Um, I don't know. I, I, no, I, I can't really think of anything else that, uh, you know, particular, I guess the other thing would be greater acceptance. Um, you know, re recognizing that uh, uh, just because, well, again, I re remember, I, I came from the uh, point of thinking the rest of the world was stupid. Um, so, <laughs> You know, moving from uh, the uh, concept that the rest of the world was stupid to the concept that, no, it's a communication challenge is really the problem. That makes you then start becoming uh, more aware and more open to people who are different. What are those differences that you need to bridge over? So I think I've become far more accepting of other people. And, you know, I, I might not agree with them, but I've, I've learned to uh, disagree respectfully as opposed to, uh, you know, uh, just think they're flaming, you know, a-holes. <laughs> and lastly, where can people find out more about you? Uh, best place is just head to my uh, website. It's uh, timgolstein.com, T-I-M-G-O-L-D-S-T-E-I-N.com. And that's it. Thank you so much, Tim. And everyone, I'll leave a link in the description down below in the show notes so you can find out more about him. That was well, Tim Goldstein. Thanks, Tim, for such a wonderful show. Hey, thank you very much, Reed, for having me. I uh, very much enjoy chatting with you. Not a problem. Till the next one, everyone. the way things used to be I'm no big fan of now I must have some sweeter memories somewhere in the cloud
gonna miss all you used to be Gonna miss all you had Consigned to the dustbins of history Like opinions from your dead Talk to the freaks. You can talk to just about anybody you happen to meet. It ain't what it was, and it is what it is. Time. 